The Veterans Health Administration, as part of its Reboot Task Force, deploys chief well-being officers to find out what's driving burnout among clinicians. It's using feedback from employees for more flexible schedules and to streamline mandatory training. For more on these efforts, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Kavita Reddy. She's the Associate Director of Employee Whole Health at VHA's Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation. But first, you hear from Jessica Bongiorni, VHA's Chief of Human Capital Management. That group has been charged with trying to tackle ways to address burnout, both for individual employees, but then what can we do as an organization to address the drivers of burnout that we have control over that individual employees aren't able to action themselves. And so after having lots of conversations with our employees through focus groups and surveys and getting their feedback, we understand where their concerns lie. And so based on that feedback, we have focused on actions that tackle things like job control, workload recognition. And coming from the lens I view things from in human resources, we know that a lot of things in the HR space tend to impact employee burnout. And so one of the key things being making sure we have enough staff to handle the workload. And so our hiring efforts have been a big impact, but we also see a lot of success this year in reducing turnover rates. So we have seen increased retention this last year, and our best places to work scores reflect that. But I think some of the investments that we've made in trying to tackle large organizational challenges to reduce administrative burden have had some impact. Employees can see that we are investing in trying to take this really seriously by doing things like finding ways to reduce things like mandatory training. It sounds like it might be a small thing, but employees get really frustrated about having to take mandatory training that takes time away from them doing their routine work and doing other things like advancing ways that we can promote scheduling flexibilities for our employees. That's been a big focus this year. So expanding those flexibilities, especially for our nursing population, is where we focus some efforts. And Dr. Reddy, you may want to speak on uh, some things that your team has been focused on as well. Specifically, when we think about advancing the culture of well-being and professional fulfillment, we are looking at drivers of burnout for clinicians. And in order to tackle some of those at the facility level, we have uh, hired chief well-being officers, be close to 30 in the next couple of months that we have within several VHA facilities. And those chief well-being officers are clinicians themselves. They are strategists, leaders, and advocates for the clinicians on the front line. And their goal is to look specifically at what are the drivers of burnout in their day-to-day work. This could be documentation. It could be understanding their team dynamics and workflows. Um, It could be looking at their own professional development and growth. Um, and equity in the types of opportunities they receive. And these chief well-being officers are then able to work with the executive leadership team, work with service level chiefs to try to come up with solutions such as more efficient processes for documenting so that they can have more time in front of their veteran that they're caring for, which is what actually brings us all joy in this work. Similarly, we want to support the mental health and well-being of our employees, and so we are looking at how to strengthen those supports when people are in times of need. From the employee whole health perspective, we also are trying to support people's individual well-being, how they are sleeping, moving, eating, um, having good connection and avoiding social isolation. All of these things are really important to having thriving employees who can then be more engaged in helping the organization thrive. 
Just to focus a little bit more on those chief well-being officers, you mentioned that they've been identifying those drivers of burnout, but what does a, a day in the life look like for them? Walk me through a little bit of their responsibilities. Yeah, so they absolutely are developing relationships across their facility, trying to learn from not only the service chiefs, but the frontline employees themselves. What are those, quote unquote, pebbles in your shoes? What are those things that are getting in the way of you having fulfillment in the work that you do every day? So this often involves a process called listen, sort, and power. It really sounds just like what it is. They have an opportunity to listen to these employees, help the service chiefs sort through all the feedback looking at what might be feasible to put into play in their service lines, and then really trying to help find the resources, the key stakeholders or the partners to be able to accomplish that work. So for example, we know that there is some software in VA that can help make the documentation process a little bit more efficient. So they help connect people to the right software, to the right informatics, subject matter experts to get that into their documentation. Another example might be that they want to have more leadership development so that they have leaders who are in service of their team, servant leaders. And so they will connect them to the education or the training or even create trainings that will help those leaders grow and be more supportive of a culture that allows for safe conversation and bringing up the things that aren't working. Okay. And to go a little bit deeper in those pain points, those rocks in the shoe, as you put it, you mentioned promoting flexible schedules for those frontline employees. Uh, obviously, healthcare by its very definition is a demanding field. You know, there are sometimes those long hours, those unpredictable schedules. But to the extent that VHA is able to, what is it able to do to make those schedules flexible and uh, accommodating for those frontline employees? We have a number of schedule flexibilities that are consistent with other federal agencies, but in particular for healthcare, we have a flexibility for our registered nurses that's called 72 for 80, in which nurses can work a schedule that is more akin to a lot of private sector organizations where they work three 12-hour shifts. Instead of working a straight 40-hour work schedule of eight-hour days, they work three 12-hour shifts per week, and that counts as a full-time schedule. And that really tends to, from the feedback we've gotten from our employees, improve their experience of burnout because they have more time to spend with their families. And so what we have identified is, is also cost savings from doing this and reduction in turnover in the facilities where they've implemented this schedule. And so we are doing additional collection of data and sharing best practices to try to expand the use of this flexibility across the enterprise. I'll add to that too. I mean, what we see when we look at drivers of burnout and the opposite then, what, what contributes to an engaged workforce is having autonomy and flexibility, as you said. And the autonomy part comes from being able to think about work-life integration and, and what schedule would work best for me to be able to drive both inside and outside of work. Often there are some myths about whether somebody can be productive or meet the needs of their colleagues or patients that they're taking care of. And what we've seen coming through the pandemic is that people can, in fact, be very productive with flexible schedules. And so we're sharing those best practices across sites, helping leaders understand how to foster that flexibility and autonomy and really having employees learn more about what flexibilities are available to them as well. Kavita Reddy, Associate Director of Employee Whole Health at VHA's Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation, you also heard from Jessica Bongiorni, VHA's Chief of Human Capital Management. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're uh, having known you now for seven or eight years um, and worked alongside you. uh, Your passion is infectious. Your uh, intelligence and and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.